Premier Christian Newscast. As children of the kingdom of God, we welcome you in the name of the King of Kings. In his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Alleluia. Christ is risen. And that was how the coronation of King Charles III began, with a young chorister stepping across the flagstones of Westminster Abbey to stand before the king in all his finery and remind him that they both serve a higher sovereign, the King of Kings, Jesus himself. The coronation service, as we've all seen, is unmistakably first and foremost a service of Christian worship. Charles came not to be commissioned into a constitutional role, but to be anointed into a sacred, almost priestly calling. And yet, despite all this, in many ways, this month's coronation was perhaps the UK's first post-Christian enthronement. The country's religious landscape is almost unrecognisable since 1953, the last time we did this, and Charles's coronation reflected that in important ways too. So why do we crown kings the way we do? How did the coronation and monarchy become so enmeshed with Christianity? And is this actually a good thing? And how has this coronation changed, spiritually speaking? What might that tell us about the religious trajectory our nation is on? I'm Tim White, and on this episode of Premier Christian Newscast, I'm joined by three experts on faith and monarchy to untangle church, state and crown in the wake of the king's surprisingly spiritual coronation. Well, thanks very much for joining us, everyone. Um, I'd love to start by asking you all to quickly introduce yourselves. Um, Catherine, why don't you go first? I'm Catherine Pepinster. I'm a journalist and broadcaster and also the author of Defenders of the Faith, the British Monarchy, Religion and the Coronation. Excellent. And um, Rhiannon, who are you? I'm Rhiannon McAleer. I'm Head of Research and Impact at Bible Society. Uh, and we have recently released a report uh, on monarchy and religion called Morning Elizabeth. And last but not least, uh, William, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm William Gulliford. I'm a Church of England vicar in North London. I'm also a director of Ordinands. And I wrote a study guide for the clergy for the coronation before we had the liturgy published, which was a probably rather brave thing to do, not knowing what was in it. Uh, and I also did TV commentary for one of the French TV stations to help the French understand what was going on, which was also another rather 
brave and outlandish thing to do. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm really pleased to have all three of you on on the episode on the podcast today. Um, I wanted to kick off by asking. I think one of the things that have really come out speaking to people after the, watching the coronation is that so many people were quite surprised at just how Christian a service it was. Um, William, can I come to you first? Why is it that that crowning our king is such a kind of sacred spiritual event rather than just a kind of constitutional political one? That's a very interesting question. I think it it emerged from a a world which made no distinction between sacred and secular. They're modern constructs, really. And we know that the earliest rite that this is based on is, is 973, though it goes back much, much further in different ways. Uh, And at that time, church was probably much bigger than the state if there was a differentiation between them. Uh, And I think it is is one of those rights, I'm interested to hear what colleagues think about this, but is because it's always been done, it's always been done. And there's always been a a sense in each generation where we've got to do it like we did last time, though inevitably there's a bit of a, um, a rethink each time and it will obviously reflect the generation um, that it is taking part in. But there, there's a, a sort of natural conservatism that goes with it that just thinks, well, we've done it before, so we must do it again. Do you agree, Catherine? Do you think that this is kind of dates back to a time when there was no such thing as sacred secular? So, of course, it's kind of suffused with Christianity. Yes. And, 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 and of course, the, the, the culture was so strongly Christian. If you look back to... Um, the 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 first coronation for which there's um, some records, Edgar's in nine seven three, um, and and then you know as, as time went by, and and the thing that struck has struck me about the coronation service o- over the years and this one as well was that it it didn't actually change that much with the Reformation. Yes, there are oaths within it about maintaining the Protestant Reformed religion, but they they seem to be in in the midst of what seemed to me very like a Catholic mass. Um, and, and, And watching it, this time it, it it did make me wonder why is it that it hadn't been adjusted to seem more a bit more protestant in in the past and now of course i think there does have to be a discussion about what it should be like next time round because it it made it made sense to me and i imagine it made sense to the three of you also on this call but I wonder to what extent it made sense to the majority of the population of this country. They may they may have been swept up by the grandeur of it, they may have been moved by the music, they may have been impressed by the ceremonial. But how how much did it mean to them? And if it didn't be, mean very much, does that show <clears throat> that it should change or does that show the next time round the Church of England should make more of an effort to communicate in advance about what it what it what's at the heart of it very quickly could i just say i i agree with that last point I think it's shocking how 
poor the information was beforehand as a regular vicar i've been school visits and school assemblies and that sort of thing and i think it's my job to help unpack and explain this right and i felt very handicapped that's why i wrote a study guide to it to, to at least guess what might be there and unpack for the clergy and ordinance i deal with some of this extraordinarily mysterious and impenetrable stuff i mean some of liturgy needs to be a bit remote that's that's its quality but nevertheless that has has to rest on something that means something uh, and i i think it was uh, a really big mistake the souvenir guide that was published about three weeks before the coronation and in previous coronation years it was published about six weeks before had no mention of the liturgy at all this time it had it did have an article which i thought was actually very good by Justin Welby that focused a lot on the anointing. I was going to ask about that because I think that's probably the most striking image is, is, you know, retreating behind these specially made screens for an anointing. And and a lot of churchgoers are kind of vaguely familiar with the idea of anointing as, as a thing that existed in Bible times. Some traditions do do it today during church. Sometimes you might do it for a special kind of commissioning. What is, what is going on there? How does anointing play a role in, in the coronation of a, of a Christian king like this? Well, it's essentially an ordination, or it's modelled on an ordination, right? The ordination actually of a bishop, a consecration in old Anglican speak. Um, and so it's very structured as, as a consecration would be. And much of the symbolism is about the instruments of office that a bishop would receive, but it's they're, they're tailored towards what a, what a king would and should receive as a, a sacral figure. Um, so, and anointing... At its heart, it's an, a strong echo of baptism and a suggestion that this is a death. It's a death and a resurrection, a death, a resurrection and an ascension. In fact, I mean, the, the, the enthronement is a key part of it. There were one or two things that weren't quite right about that this time. The, the, the king should then be placed on a higher throne above the place of, cons- of, of consecration and anointing because it symbolises the trajectory of our baptism to reign at the right hand of of um, Christ with the, with the Father. Um, that doesn't explain, though, does it? Why it needs to be hidden? <clears throat> I mean, if you have, a, if you if you attend a baptism, it's a public ceremony. An ordination is as well. So I think why it has to be hidden needs more unpacking for people to make sense of it. It doesn't actually have to be hidden, and that that's actually a. a late um, addition. And I think it was part of the televisual age that it was felt um, before the coronation of the last queen, but particularly with a young woman who was being anointed on her breast, that um, it should be done in a demure way. But the idea of the canopy, which predates the screen that was used this time, was more, not was less to hide it and more to suggest the significance of the holiness that was taking place around it, like altars have baldacchinos on them. It, it's a, spe- a place of special holiness and marked out. It isn't actually to hide it. But I think the way it was done this time, I thought was rather beautiful, although it wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have imagined doing it like this, but they did it in a way which did symbolise death in a rather interesting way. The way the guardsmen had their heads um, hanging down a, a little bit like when they were carrying the, the Queen's coffin. There was something appropriate about that, but I think that was essentially an innovation. 
Um, Rhiannon, can I just come to you? We've been talking a lot about about the kind of strangeness, the otherness of some of these liturgies, some of these rites. Um, in you, when you, in your research, how do people respond when asked about the kind of Christianness of these huge public events, like the funeral of the queen or a coronation of a king? Are, pe- are people baffled by it? Are they infused by this? Are they apathetic? Um, yeah, it's it's a really great question, and the answer is there are no no simple answers to people's responses like that. One thing that surprised us when we undertook the Morning Elizabeth poll, which was done six weeks after the the funeral of the Queen, um, was that people overall were remarkably warm to the presence of Christianity um, and the Bible. And it wasn't just because um, the Queen was a a public Christian figure, her faith was well known and, and well talked about. So 79% of people that we talked to, we spoke to 3,000 people with uh, YouGov, who are respected and well-known research agency. 79% agreed it was appropriate, given the faith of the Queen, that Christianity should should be so present in her funeral. And 72% said it was appropriate for a British royal event in general. Um, We asked, were people happy the events were wholly Christian? And 55% said they, they were happy. But There is a flip side to this and and what Catherine and William were talking about, about understandability. Um, We have to bear in mind this is taking place in a context where Christianity is kind of changing um, its position in Britain. And there are a whole generation of people who are increasingly at a distance from Christianity, the symbols of Christianity and the Bible in general. So we, we asked people in response to the Queen's funeral how they responded to the Bible um, and the the Bible readings because the Bible was incredibly present and that that was another thing um, that that surprised us and we found that about um, 25% of people said they found the Bible boring but when we asked whether they found the Bible difficult to understand about a quarter of young people and those from other faiths said they, they did find the Bible passages difficult to understand. And the significance of that public event for the Bible was huge. 40% of young people said they'd heard parts of the Bible they'd not heard before. The Bible was um, King James Version. And it just, um, you know, it really raised for us that there is a, an opportunity here for, for the church to um, consider how do we, if this is when people are getting their, their Christianity and Bible exposure in these big public events, these royal events, how can we prepare to help people see that the Bible is speaking and that it is relevant? Because this issue of relevancy is, is so important for people's perceptions um, of the Bible. So, yeah, over, overall, um, we, we find that we don't see strong appetite for big royal events shifting to becoming multi-faith or secular and that Christianity has an important and welcome place. But there's certainly work that, that we can do um, to, to help people um, take part and experience, um, experience the, those moments. And what I would say is that extends not just to the big public royal events, but it's thinking about the local so that when people go to a wedding or a funeral that might be the only time that they're experiencing christianity and the bible in years and how can we we bridge that gap how can we make um what were once understood and common symbols and experiences how how can we keep them relevant and understood i think that 
um, in what Rhiannon's saying uh, actually highlights the one of the difficulties with the coronation. So people can relate to uh, a funeral, mm-hmm. um, a Church of England royal funeral, just as they can to a Church of England royal wedding. Absolutely. Because the, these are familiar rites of passage. You, you, you may have only gone to uh, a, a, a more secular humanist kind of funeral or a register office wedding. But even the pattern of these is often mimicking, mirroring um, Christian services. William earlier articulated very helpfully how the coronation was in many ways a rite of passage, but it's not as obvious. Uh, It's not something that the vast majority of people in this country would ever have seen before. So, you know, I don't don't think it's as, as, as... easy for people to connect with a coronation as it as it would be for the late queen's funeral absolutely and i I mean there's a lot in that that the liturgy used for the for the queen is familiar um you know it's one that was at its heart anglican and, and many people will have experienced the coronation is by its nature a very very different um rites and the idea of it being available for mass public consumption is a very modern idea and there's something about the strangeness and and the sacredness um it is is really unusual i think that's what makes it a particularly fascinating um moment in time to to observe William, you're as a, as a vicar, you're obviously, as you said earlier, doing a lot of interface bridging between kind of church and society, you know, whether in your parish or in other work. Do you find the coronation or kind of large televised Christian events like that kind of do they help or hinder that work of of kind of making finding common ground or or, or reaching across a divide? I think for the most part, people are both respectful of it and intrigued by it. I have heard surprisingly little negative comment about it. I think I was expecting more, particularly in the national press. In the parish, I think I did try to raise awareness of it. It had become a bit of an obsession for me, really. Uh, But they, they didn't think, oh, no, he's going to talk about the coronation again. I think they were genuinely interested because there is there's so much in it. I mean, the, the whole of the Old Testament in some way is encapsulated by it because the history of sacral monarchy is the sort of documented history of Israel, so uh, of Israelite religion to some extent. So you, you, you can do an awful lot of effective biblical teaching uh, about the ambivalence within the Old Testament about monarchy and, and the outcomes of it and it's what it prefaces in terms of our Lord's Messiahship you know, there are so many interesting things. And I think it it was a way in for many people into scripture. And there I'm speaking about people both in the church and the margins of the church, people who are intrigued by it. Uh, we certainly experienced people coming to church on the Sunday before and after the Sundays before and after the coronation because they knew we were doing things around that. And I think there was again respect around that. Um, I would like to have hoped, I, I did hope that it might almost bring about some sort of renewal for the church because it was a point of connection. I'm not 
quite sure it was that, but I think it didn't do the church any harm to be part of this. To be part of this both as, both as host of the right in a gracious way and um, one which did expand the horizons of the right. I mean, there were a whole load of innovations here which were very intriguing. I'd be very interested to hear more about what Catherine thinks, both as a non-Anglican and, you know, in, in terms of the interfaith optics of it, because that's all very, very new, but helpfully reflective, I think, of the society in, in which we live. Hmm. Well, Catherine, let's come to you then. As a, as a non-Anglican, how did it come across as a, as a, as a Christian, but not someone um, part of the Church of England? Does it feel exclusionary? Does it feel kind of um, off-putting that, that, that your king, as well as our king, is, is such a thoroughly, deeply kind of sacralised Anglican figure? Well, there are various things to say about that. First of all, um, I think for Roman Catholics, one is used to, um, for there to be good ecumenical relations between the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church nowadays. Um, I'm somebody who personally welcomes that. But then when you come to the coronation, you you hear this oath about maintaining the Protestant reformed religion. And then, of course, on this occasion, we also had included in the coronation an additional promise um, that's linked to the um, Accession Act. Um, which is is normally conducted at the first state opening of Parliament of a reign. This time was within the coronation, where the king also said, "I am a faithful Protestant." Now I'm not quite sure why, but there's something about the word Protestant that feels much more alienating and aggressive to a Catholic than something gentle like Anglican. And so, you know, I think a lot of Catholics find that actually a bit difficult still when that goes on. Um, there are some Anglicans who struggle with that word too. Yes, good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Um, and and yet there were these efforts at being more ecumenical and, and efforts at, at, at involving other faiths too. So I welcome those, but they were pretty minimal. And I understand why the efforts at involving the other faiths were minimal because of canon law. But to give to give the the representatives of other Christian denominations between them just 90 words to say um in a service of thousands of words. I, I thought it I thought in the end it always felt a bit like window dressing to be honest and it would have been it would have been good to have somehow found a way to involve them a bit more. Premier Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. What do others think about that issue about ecumenical or multi-faith involvement, which, as William says, is quite a, a novel thing for coronations, isn't it? Well, if you've read the correspondence um, about the 1953 coronation, Archbishop Fisher was 
he's he took a long time to decide exactly how the presentation of the Bible would take place then, which of course was done by the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Um, and I, I can't work out if it was it was sort of Anglican um, auteur or or um, just pure snobbishness generally. But he, he said he didn't want, um, he, he wanted a uniformity of voice and he didn't want the moderator saying anything. In the end, the moderator did say a few words in presenting the Bible. There's lovely, lovely words drafted by Compton in 1689. Um, this is the royal law. Um, but uh, that was the only thing that was said then. Uh, he he certainly was very clear, Fisher, in his correspondence, that nobody else had any place or any right to, to be there. And that included the um, Anglican churches in Scotland and Wales as well. <laughs> not, not that partisan. Um, so I think the move, given that it was a Eucharistic rite, was actually quite ambitious. I wasn't convinced by the coronation blessing, the benediction that was used there, because I think that it was that some of the words were, were not, they weren't beautiful, um, and that was sad. When the cardinal wished the king a happy eternity, when the prayer that's based on um, speaks of everlasting joy and felicity, um, I think that would have been a much better bet. But uh, uh, I, I was very pleased to see the the, the um, involvement then an active participation not just of religious leaders but lay people which I think it was only the Earl Marshall in 1953 and 1937 and previous coronations in the uh, 19th and uh, early 20th centuries who uh, actually um, was able to to take part several of the great officers of state were lay Roman Catholics and other laity from other other Christian traditions. So I think in terms of active participation, there were far more non-Anglicans than before. Uh, but I do take your point, Catherine, that it would be really helpful to begin to think about how an ecumenical service could be, could be thought about more seriously for the next time. Rhiannon, you mentioned in your research that you asked people about how they'd feel about kind of multi-faith versions of some of these great public events and and slightly perhaps surprisingly to those who kind of think we're in a post-christian society there wasn't there wasn't much appetite for that yeah absolutely and i i think um it's important to note when we're talking about um multi-faith here they most of the public won't be thinking about ecumenicism they'll, they'll be thinking about the um representation of you know um, muslims or, or hindus or sikhs so that, that's in the context of this question. Um, yeah, I mean, very low. Uh, when we asked about um, the funeral of the Queen as a specific event, um, there were very few people who said it should have either been secular or multi-faith. That's very understandable, I think, given it's um, a funeral of a Christian person. You know, we, we can probably argue that there's not a lot to read into that. But when we asked about future royal events, we asked them, um, should royal events be uh, wholly Christian? Should they be um, secular or should they have elements of other faiths? We asked those as, as separate questions. Um, overall, there's no um, massive appetite for, for secular at all. It, it was very low. And um, you know, when people are given the option to say, I would like those events to be secular, they're not, they're not taking it. Equally, when we asked, um, should they be multi-faith, again, um, it was very low. And should they be Christian? It wasn't massive. It's about 35% or so. 
the rest of people aren't disagreeing. They're saying they neither agree nor disagree. So what that's that's suggesting overall is that a lot of the population don't really have a strong opinion on on the presence of these uh, on the presence of religion, and that's very understandable. Our, our conversations about religion in Britain are dominated by um, minorities who are very loud in terms of saying what's going on on, on that we should be a secular country. And most of the population, they just don't hold strong opinions um, in that that respect. And when things like a a Christian event are put to them, they accept it. And there's still a place uh, for the church to kind of navigate the population through these these big events. And, And that's what we're really seeing. So I think, you know, without having asked people directly about the coronation, that on the issue of of multi-faith or secular that that most people were probably happy with with how it was and accept it as as part of the nature of that event itself i think in terms of um the diversity of the church that that is something that um unless you ask people of faith themselves we wouldn't see a, a strong um a strong understanding that something was absent perhaps Something that people have, have discussed afterwards is the idea that that Justin Welby's kind of used it as a bit of a, you know, like the evangelical he is to try and kind of proclaim a bit of the gospel message through through the sermon and other things. Did you think that's a fair summary, Catherine? Did, and is that a good thing to do for the church to say we've got this hour or so on on national TV with tens of millions tuning in? Let's use it not just to, to crown a king, but also to try and smuggle in some some of a broader kind of message about about Christian teaching. Well, one of the things I th- I thought was was a really beautiful um, addition to the service um, was when the king arrived and the young chorister stepped forward and welcomed him and 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 uh, the king said, "I come not to be served but to serve." I th- I mean I thought that was really very moving, and and a strong message. And I, I liked the way they, um, they they attempted to emphasise that idea of service throughout the the, the the coronation ceremony, and I think that idea would would certainly have resonated with any any Christian of any denomination, and I imagine it also resonated with people uh, from other faiths. Um, resonated with their values. I hope it resonated with people who are not believers. Um, so I think I, you know, I think I think that 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 side of it was 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 well done. Um, and it it was it was good to see that. And 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 the King's Prayer also um, articulated those ideas too. And I was very interested. I I, I was in. Uh, Westminster Abbey um, this time last week and at midday they stopped for for prayer which I think is something that they do every day at at noon Um, now if if it had been a Catholic cathedral they might have said the Angelus but what what they actually said was the King's Prayer so I don't know if that's going to continue or if it was just because it was within a few days of the of the coronation there, um, but it certainly 
showed that that prayer, you know, has has meaning beyond just that coronation. And is continuing to echo around those amazing, amazing pillars and walls for which it was built. Just to um, kind of pick up on something that Catherine mentioned about could it have resonated with people of other faiths and, and people of no faith? Well, our... Um, our survey on the funeral of the Queen, we, we asked about the Bible in this particular instance, there was a, a huge proportion of people, both of no religion and another religion, or what we might describe as nominal Christians who, who don't go to church regularly, who found that the Bible passages did speak to them and that they found them moving and relevant. It's, it's not everyone, um, but there is a ground where you know, the Bible and Christianity it, it, it is speaking um, to people beyond the active church and to take encouragement from that. Within and beyond the service itself, I think there were some, several ecumenical gestures that were really very profound and beautiful and, and wouldn't have been possible, certainly since 1680 died until, until now and possibly since 1534. The, the gift by the Pope of two splinters, relics of the true cross, um, mm. which were then uh, incorporated into a processional cross for the church in Wales. I thought that was a lovely gesture. And I, I'm only guessing, but I don't think it would have been a welcome one in 1953. I think there would have been, that, that word Protestant would, would come to the fore, whereas now I think the king who is has a deeply ecumenical vision of the church and a, a curious you know, he, he's curious about the Christian faith and wants to know it in its full Catholic sense. I think it would have touched him very, very greatly um, beyond the sort of initial sort of Protestant sensibilities around relics that there is in some quarters. I think it wouldn't have worried him at all. I think he would have genuinely understood and respected and been very grateful for that gesture as is seen in what he's done with them. And likewise, that we've talked about the oil already, but the 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 backstory to the oil with very strongly ecumenical um, resonances was unique. And that's never been done before. The, 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 the olives come from the Mount of Olives from the Garden of Gethsemane. They were pressed in Bethlehem. They were then taken to the Patriarchate in Jerusalem, blessed by the um, successor to James, the brother of the Lord, Greek Orthodox senior bishop in, in Jerusalem, who's regarded by all the, the Christian hierarchs in Jerusalem as the sort of first amongst equals there because he is his, his history is so important. Then taken to the Holy Sepulchre itself, where with Archbishop Hossam, who's the Anglican uh, Archbishop there, was blessed. So drawing together both the sort of the ancient history of the church there, the story of the Holy Land now, the story of the king's grandmother who's buried on the Mount of Olives just next to where those olives were picked, and her aunt, Princess Elizabeth, um, both of them direct descendants of Queen Victoria, with, with all the stories of suffering and service and uh, martyrdom in the case of Princess Elizabeth of Russia, right by where Jesus knelt under those same olive trees. Um, I mean, it, it's just an amazing story and beautifully conceived and and without without any sort of cloying sentimentality you know it was it's it was a real thing and i it, the people who put that together which i think were the archbishop of jerusalem the archbishop of canterbury and patriarch theophilus iii it was a wonderful gesture yes i absolutely agree those two things were important the other thing which um i didn't notice uh, on the day um, and only did when I went to look at the screen 
last week was that at, at the bottom of the screen, the screen used um, in the anointing, um, it had a quotation from Julian of Norwich. Um, and, of course, it's the 450th anniversary this year of her Revelations of Divine Love. Um, and I thought, again, you know, that was that was a very, um, you know, a very thoughtful touch. A lot of care had gone into this. Hmm. And just lastly, then, you mentioned some of the changes. We've talked about some of the changes since since the last coronation in 1953. Do you think that these speak of, of Charles's own personal faith? I mean, you said there, William Howe, he has a kind of a really curious mind about the, you know, he's really interested in orthodoxy and and. Um, you know, the, a lot of people, the Queen had a very heartfelt and sincere faith, but people say that Charles is is equally sincere, but also quite different. Could you say a bit, did you did you pour out, pull out threads from from how he and, and the Archbishop had kind of constructed the service that, that speak to his distinctive Christian faith? I don't know him personally, but just from things he's written, things he's, he's said, and just as uh, in his own journey and not least his regular visits to Athos and his interest in Romania, um, his sensibility, I mean, the, the, the commission of the of Psalm 72 being sung by the Byzantine choir um, uh, was a, a very direct connection both with his father and his Orthodox heritage. Uh, and I, 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 yeah, he he's not rejecting anything. That's my sense of him as a person, that he isn't one to stand out against things, but to see how things can be drawn together without being merely eclectic that there's a and that actually is quite similar to his mother although their personalities were very different she her Christmas messages were always about finding common ground without compromising the the absolutely foundational character of her Christian faith it was it, it was exemplary in her life and I think it's being lived out in a very very interesting and wholesome way by Prince Charles could I just interject there with something about the Christmas messages that I was very intrigued by? So Elizabeth II's Christmas messages um, became increasingly overtly about her her own faith over the years, from about the year two thousand. Um, and and earlier in her reign, they 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 weren't quite so um, specific in that way. But her very first Christmas message was very much about. Um, faith and in it so that was Christmas 52 and in it she asked people whatever your faith may be to pray for her as she prepared for the coronation now I think for somebody to say that in 1952 it is you know whatever your faith may be was quite must have been quite innovative must have been you know unexpected possibly we now live in this world you know, of interfaith dialogue, of hopefully more tolerance. And yet when it came to the King's Christmas message, he didn't make a a, a request of that kind. And I, I wondered why. And I wondered why if, in fact, we've gone beyond the sort of, that you can be open about saying, whatever your faith may be, pray for me, to thinking, oh dear, if I say that, I'm going to exclude all those more secular people, so I won't say it at all. I, I really wondered why he didn't didn't make that request. It's abs- absolutely fascinating. And I think it's going to be an interesting one to watch. So one, one thing we found in our survey was the importance of 
Queen Elizabeth as a public figure to Christians, as a, a Christian person. And um, we, we found that over half of churchgoers found that the Queen positively influenced their perceptions of Christianity, um, the church and the Bible. And the, the events of the funeral itself improved the perceptions of about a third of churchgoers further again. So there's something here about public faith and being a, a public Christian person as, as a role model that, that matters. We also found that um, favorability towards the monarchy was higher among churchgoers, regardless of age. So it's not just an age effect. So again, something about monarchy and, and um, Christianity going together there. And it will be really interesting to see how the king speaks about his faith and whether those trends that we've kind of marked um, last year, whether they continue um, and that, that influence um, and relationship continues over his reign. Obviously, there was a lot of discussion about, um, you know, Republicans who were understandably not hugely infused by the whole coronation. But one, one thing that hasn't been talked about much is actually Christians who are not necessarily anti-monarchy. But I know people have said to me that they felt uncomfortable about the kind of sacralizing of the king, as you said, William, kind of raising him up to this kind of bishop-like, almost priestly figure. Is, do you have any sympathy for the idea that actually this is a kind of holdover from Christendom? It might be very ancient, but actually the Bible is clear that God is, feels quite ambiguously about kings. And, and is, it, is it wise? Is it sensible? Is it Christian? Is it faithful to, to take this political constitutional figure and, and elevate him to this kind of sacred role? It's dangerous. I mean, we're, we're on dangerous territory, but anything that's about God is dangerous territory. So you know, uh, I think it's it's very clear. Unfortunately, it was diluted in some of the prayers this time, but it is very clear that the 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 it is God who's in charge, and that the in this if you, if, if we call it Christendom, I mean, I, I think it's a that's not necessarily the most helpful word, but it. I, I concede that we are dealing with something which is very, very pre-modern. Um, and it has always been about the preeminence of God and the service that the monarch um, enacts in the name of God. Uh, they are only raised as a symbol. Their, their priestly function is only representative. It is never something which is ultimately theirs. And as we saw at the Queen's funeral, the giving back of the instruments of office, office the, the, as they were placed on the altar, that's, that's the destiny of all this. We are, we are all human beings. But we have to be very careful how this is played and what we say. And that, that's why I think having it a, within a Eucharistic rite, which I appreciate could be exclusive, but the first thing the King does after they have been enthroned is then to take their crown off and kneel in front of the altar is a very important next step in in the right it wasn't the optics of that weren't as well done as they were in 53 i don't think hmm. any final thoughts on that before we wrap it up the need to kind of bring the king down off his throne after placing him on it upon it well he's not, and he, of course he's not wearing his crown when he receives communion is he as well and and I've noticed quite a few people have, have mentioned that it seemed odd that communion was only received by 
was it four people, the King and Queen, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was it the Archbishop of York as well? Um, and possibly the two assisting bishops. It would yes, um, which I, I think a lot of people find a bit strange. I, I presume that's just practicalities. It would but add... How, how sacraments used to be, marriages, it just used yeah. to be the couple. I mean, it's, it's relatively it, new that the whole congregation... It would, would it would add a lot of time to it. And, and it also might be divisive if you've got a lot of people in the congregation who wouldn't receive it brilliant all right well um we've kind of run out of time i'm afraid it's been such a fascinating discussion i could talk about this all day um but i must let you guys all get it back on so thanks so much for 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 taking part william Rhiannon, and Catherine. it's lovely to have your thoughts and your reflections on this um and uh, thank you everyone else for listening as well um we'll uh, speak to you again next week bye-bye That's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast. But if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use. And why not also tell a friend about the show? Don't forget to also subscribe to the podcast on your phone or tablet to ensure that you receive each episode automatically sent to your device week by week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast. 